Well, good morning. Again, I say that because I'm just nervously looking for something to fill the space right now. I have not been looking forward to this sermon. For those who are visiting with us today, we're glad you're with us. Uh, this is going to be weird because our text is weird today. Um, and I've wrestled with this all for, well, for several weeks, but I've wrestled with it very much so this, this week, not in trying to, um, to understand the text, um, but to figure out how do I say it to you. Um, texts like these can really test your preaching. Uh, my way I approach preaching is I don't think the sermon is supposed to be a detailed Bible study. I, I think the sermon is supposed to be the, the pastor having exegeted the text and having reflected and meditated on the text, tried to ask himself, you know, how does this help my people? And how do I communicate it in such a way that it moves them towards something, that it is exhorting them towards something? Yes, there is content here that is the basis of the exhortation. But sometimes, especially Reformed preaching, because we do take the word so seriously, Reformed sermons kind of become Bible studies. I don't want to do that with this text, but there is so much behind the scenes going on here. Um, that, that's why I, I started to unfold background stuff um, last Sunday evening in the supplemental study, and I'm going to continue to do that uh, because there's a lot going on here. What I do want to do this morning, though, is, is I've changed the reading. We're not going to read what I originally had planned us to read. We're still focusing on this passage from 1 Peter 3, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some other passages to try to help get you ready for hearing our passage this morning. And, and I want you to just listen. So don't try to flip and get to all these different places. I just want you to let the word wash over you. The first text is from Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I 
Jude chapter 1. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Skipping down to verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Second Peter, zeroing in more on our author, the same author of the text that will be uh, what we are focusing on in the sermon. Second Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to, extin to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, skipping down to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. All right, now to our text in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as these are words that you inspired for the benefit of your people, that you would help us to be able to hear them, 
that you would help us to understand them and that you would help us, O Heavenly Father, to see how powerful these words are for us, as strange as they sound to us in our everyday living, as those who are strangers and exiles, who have called to embrace and embody the hope of Jesus Christ in a hostile world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis's words are quite wise. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in our thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. These words are quite wise, and they they really do illustrate how often in our day and age, how we tend to fall into one of those two extremes. I mean, we get up in the morning because our iPhone has woken us up with its alarm or because of a digital clock that has woken us up with its alarm. Uh, Or when you you get up, you you walk over, especially if you're Daniel, you walk over and you have to turn light switches on because he gets up at like three in the morning. But you walk over and you flip a light and a light's on. You just, you flip a little thing or you push a little button or in some people, you know, you do clap if you have the clapper. But you can do one little simple gesture and there's lights. More than that, we can pull out a phone, which isn't a phone anymore. It's, it's an app on the device, and it's probably the least used app. <laughs> but you pull out your device, and you have access to the Internet. And you can do almost anything. And the device that you're holding had, has more computing power than, than the, the, the rockets that NASA used to send men to the moon. We have more computing power in the palm of our hand. Some of you have more computing power on your wrist if you have an Apple Watch. We live in an amazing day of technological invention and progress. But one of the things that that blessing brings with it is it can tend to start changing the way we view reality. Now, make no mistake, I am not trying to argue, let's go back to the good old days before technology, right? Anytime I hear someone say that, I have two words as a response for them, modern dentistry. We do not want to go back to the good old days, okay? But we have to acknowledge that with all the good that technological process brings with it, it brings challenges, and that challenge very specifically is to do what Lewis is talking about here and is to forget that we live in a world that has a spiritual dimension that is real and that plays a role in the unfolding of what's happening 
within the dimension that we can see, that we can smell, that we can touch, that we can hear. There is something beyond just sensory experience. There is a world beyond that. And we like that, and we tend to think about that. We do tend to think, or we tend to like sing about it and pray about it, but I think sometimes we do it in ways where we don't really think through and embrace the reality of what we are praying or what we are singing. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The Christ who took on flesh as the eternal second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, who came to this world as a servant, humbling himself even to the point of death, giving up for a time the glory that was due to him because he is God, took on flesh in order to obey God for us, to go to the cross and take the penalty of our sins upon himself. To be raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And to be exalted in his ascension back to the right hand of God as king over all. What is this overall? This overall is not simply theological categories like sin. It's not just a theological category like death. It is, very, it is in a very real sense. It is an exaltation over everything. Not only in the world that we see but even in the world that exists that we don't see. When you live in a modern Western country like ours that has all these technological advances, a lot of times this truth of Scripture can become theological categories for us. They become theological propositions for us. We become comfortable we become comfortable with talking about Jesus taking on flesh. We become comfortable talking about Jesus dying for us and being raised back to life for us. We're, we get comfortable in talking about these things because we tend to think, okay, I've got a handle on what all of this means for me. What Peter is wanting to encourage you with in this text this morning is that this victory of Christ is so much further and beyond what we typically think about. In order, and then in order, to help us be reminded of just how vast that victory is, he has given us the sign of baptism. When was the last time that you thought about your baptism? When was the last time? When was the last time the reality of your baptism 
was affecting your devotion to Christ, your obedience within this world. See, baptism is powerful. It is a means of grace. And it is a tangible sign that is communicating these realities that we don't see, that we don't see yet. I said last week that you have in this text a simple early Christian confession of faith concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the third point is this point that that has the weird stuff in it. And I said that by Christ's proclamation, he reigns over the forces of chaos and darkness. Now, there's too much detail to go in with that. But there is a theme that runs throughout Scripture of the way that God's sovereign power is exiled over the chaotic waters. It begins in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, and we are told that the earth was formless and void, and that the Spirit of God was hovering where? Over the waters. And that from that, through his word and spirit, the Lord takes this dark, watery, chaotic kind of world and he establishes it with order and he fills it with all the good things that he wants to share with his creation. And you see this this power of God over these waters that run throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the flood narrative. We see it when the the people of God are leaving Egypt. What does God do? He separates the waters for them to walk through those waters. And they do it again when they enter into the promised land. And there are different times and different ways that this watery, this watery chaos is pictured as being, yes, a threat to God's people, but not a threat to God himself. So that even in Psalm 93 that we use for our call to worship as the majesty and the majestic power of God's kingly rule is, is being highlighted and being celebrated. It is being celebrated specifically in contrast to the chaotic waters that are rising up against God's people. And that the confidence being expressed by the psalmist is that God, not only in his person, but simply in his word, simply in his speaking, has power over what to us is very unsettling. And that is why, by the way, how often do we, when we are going through really hard times, or when you have a loved one that's going through a very hard time, do they tend to describe their existence or your experience in terms of drowning? It feels like I'm drowning. How are you doing? You got the, the diagnosis is cancer. What's going on? In, in, you know, how, what, how's your heart? I feel like I'm drowning. 
You see that? We use that metaphor. And then throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels, how many times do we see Jesus showing his kingly rule over creation by settling chaotic waters? Standing up in the boat and saying, be silent. And the disciples going, whoa, who is this dude that even the waters obey his word? Walking on the waters to his people. Right? The Lord Jesus up on the mountain in fellowship with his father has sent his disciples on a mission. And as they're crossing the sea, a storm comes up and they're being thrashed all about. And what is the the story that, that Jesus descends from the mountain fellowship with his father and he walks out upon the sea to his people to calm them and to give them the confidence that they need that he is with them even in that storm and that because he is ruling over those things and that he brings them safely through to that other side. This is a theme that runs throughout the scripture, even to the point where you get to Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, where we have the throne room of God being described for us. It says that before him is a sea that is what? It's like crystal. The waters are not roaring. They are not chaotic. They are glassy. There's this theme running throughout the scripture where God's power and his rule is demonstrated very specifically with regard to waters because in the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Bible was originally written, the different people groups that the people of God were dealing with, whether it was the Egyptians or the Canaanites or the Girgashites or all the different ites, all those different people groups, when you get to the New Testament, And you have the disciples who are doing ministry with Jews, but also Gentiles and Gentiles of the different nations. Throughout that period of time in history, the people that lived during that time had a very specific understanding of of this, this idea of water and the connection between water and supernatural powers. When you read the flood narrative that we have in our scripture, we read about this, but did you realize that all the different ancient people groups in that area also had flood narratives? Do you realize that the flood narrative was not something that was limited to scripture? And in all the different flood narratives that exist out there, all of them had to do with the different gods at war with one another. Now, I I, I didn't even mean to go this far into the detail. But what I want you to understand, in Genesis 1, the argument that's being played played out there is not about evolution. It's about Yahweh being the one who truly rules over the waters 
and has brought the world into existence. All the people groups that the nation of Israel, as they were going to go into that promised land and that they were going to have to fight and they were going to have to conquer, all of them had these beliefs that their gods were the superior gods and that their gods were the superior gods and it, ha- and it was connected to this water theme. What God is showing the people is, look, you're going to go in there. Yes, they believe these things, but I am the one who is truly over them. I am over everything. This connection between the natural and the supernatural in this image of water. It's not just about God can calm and still the waters of your soul. Though he does. And that's awesome. But more than that, God is in control of all the chaotic forces that are at work within our creation, within our world, within our existence. Peter here talks about this proclamation of Jesus Christ, a proclamation that I said last week is not a preaching of the gospel. This is not a preaching of the good news. This is a proclamation of of victory. This is the type of proclamation that an emissary or an ambassador on behalf of a king is coming and making a kingly pronouncement. Jesus has, is making a kingly pronouncement that victory has been achieved. Within the context, remember, throughout the Gospels, why is it that when Jesus is being shown to be the Son of God, when he is being shown to be the one, the Messiah who has come from God, is he shown as having not only the power to work earthly miracles with regards to creation, but he also is working miracles with regards to the spiritual dimension, where he is exercising authority over these dark spirits that are said to be at work in the lives and in the cultures of the peoples that Jesus is ministering to. Even in like the most famous one, right? In Matthew 8, where, where Jesus is dealing with this person that's filled with this, this uh, demon, and as Jesus is exercising control over the dark forces that have taken up residence in this individual, they cry out to him and say, what? Is this the time? Is this now the day? Is this the time where you come and and, and bring judgment, final judgment upon us? And Jesus says, it's not time. And they well, then what are you going to do with us? And he lets them go into pigs. Don't let that ruin your idea of barbecue. But he exercises authority. But the authority that he was exercising there in the gospel was not the authority that he will exercise when he comes in the second coming, when he will exercise the authority of the final judgment of the day, of that great day. It is coming. But what we see in Jesus 
is that until that great day comes, even the evil spirits that are at work in corrupting things within this world and corrupting people within this world, even they have limits and can only operate as far as Christ allows them to operate. And that for some reason, they are being allowed to operate right now. For the original readers of this letter, they get this. They don't have to be reminded of a supernatural existence and worldview. They live with that worldview, and they live in a culture that celebrates a supernatural worldview. They're surrounded by pagans. They are not surrounded by modern-day scientists like we have today. They are not surrounded by people who have a naturalistic worldview. They're surrounded by people who believe that there are lots of gods and that the gods are at war with one another and that the gods are using us within that war. They don't have to be reminded that the struggle that they are facing is not simply a struggle as Paul says, of flesh and blood. They know that what they are up against are these principalities, these spiritual powers, that there is an unseen dimension that is very actively engaged. And that what they are experiencing in the frustration of their everyday existence that it does transcend just the person in front of them that's being ugly. And that it goes further. It goes deeper. And what Peter is helping them to, to reminding them of is that the spiritual dimension that they are very well um, familiar with, that they really understand, is part of the darkness that they are facing, that Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, is even more powerful than all the forces of hell and darkness. That everything has been subdued under his feet, and that there is no escaping judgment. They know what it's like. And they would have been attributing their struggle to more than just their neighbors. They would have been attributing it to more than just their culture. They would have been attributing it to this unseen realm. Now, within this unseen realm, we are told by Peter... And we're told by Jude that apparently in the days leading up to Noah that there was this heightened uh, wickedness and fallenness that, that was revealed in the world not only in what men and women were doing in their sinfulness 
But as they say that there were these angels who did not maintain their proper sphere. It says they left their proper, proper sphere. It, it describes them as rejecting God's authority in leaving their sphere and doing what they wanted to do. We are told in 2 Peter and Jude that this somehow includes immorality. And it connects it to the days leading up to the flood in Noah, in which, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, as we read, we read about that there are these sons of God who see the daughters of men, who go after them, who take them for themselves. There's immorality, and there is this progeny, these children that are born that are, are described as the Nephilim, these strong, um, powerful, um, how else would you describe them? They're giants. And throughout the history of the church, there has been disagreements over what that passage means and whether or not the passages in Second Peter and Jude are filling in the details for us. But without going into the details, I am one of those who fall into the camp that see this as um, the angels who decided not to operate within the world as God had called them to do, transcended, or they, 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 they transgressed that proper sphere and something weird happened. And the result is that the Lord says that these angels who crossed the lines and who had this wicked offspring, that the Lord has described as keeping them bound in chains until the coming day of judgment. So who are the spirits that Jesus is making his proclamation to here in 1 Peter, I think when you take what Peter says in 2 Peter, when you take what you see in Jude, when you understand that there was a tradition at this time that was based on this extra-biblical source known as First Enoch, by the way, um, the quote that we read in verse 14 of Jude is a quote from First Enoch. It is a quote from an extra-biblical source. And it is that specific extra-biblical source, an extra-biblical source that attempts to fill in the details of this Genesis 6 passage and this understanding of the angels crossing and the evil offspring and all this kind of stuff. All right. What is my point here? The point is this. There are evil spiritual powers that exist and they are allowed to operate. They wreak havoc. They sow darkness and chaos. They are contrary to light and life. They love darkness and they love keeping sinful men cloaked in that darkness. 
And they do that by promoting darkness within them. All right. And the people of God, while we wait for Christ to return, we live in the world where all of this is going on. And when you and I are talking to somebody that is struggling with this, some form of darkness in their life, what Peter wants us to understand is that even the dark forces that are behind that, they are under the rule of Jesus Christ. And so we do not need to hesitate in confronting darkness. We do not need to hesitate the confrontation of sin and darkness and evil that we may experience within our own hearts, that we may experience within our own homes, that we may experience in our workplace, what, that we may experience in politics, that we may experience in the culture at, at wide, and that we may experience in these third world countries as we try to take the gospel into these places that do still believe in these things and, and they do sow darkness. Talk to the missionaries who have gone... Um, to Haiti, talk to Kelly about the darkness that, that is that just, it, 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 people say it's almost like you can see it as you're coming up to the island or to that part of the island, that there is a real darkness that exists and we do not have to be afraid of it because Jesus Christ rules over it. So how do we know that we can trust this? How do we know that we can entrust ourselves to the rule of Christ? Peter tells us. It's your baptism. In the days that these evil spirits were doing what they did and all this stuff, it leads up to uh, Noah, it leads up to the flood, it leads up to the ark, and what does Peter say? Eight people, eight souls, it says literally in the Greek. Eight souls were taken safely through the chaotic judgment waters of God to be brought safely through and to continue that line that God had established from the very beginning of creation. Eight souls out of everyone that existed. Now what's amazing there that sometimes we forget is that the way that Noah and his family were delivered was not by being removed from the judgment, it was by being protected through the judgment. The waters that were the judgment waters of God that he caused to overwhelm the earth and to, to kill those who were arrayed against him, those waters were the waters that they safely passed through. 
It wasn't that they were taken away from the waters. It wasn't that they were taken out of the world while God did this and then he put them back. He provided them safety through it because they were going through the judgment just as his enemies were going through the judgment. The difference is they went through the judgment as those protected and delivered by God. He gave them the ark and he brought them safely through. And what Peter tells us is that baptism is a type. It is a type that functions within Scripture to let us understand in a better way what it means when he says to us, Jesus has brought us to God through his crucifixion and resurrection. See, beloved, what it means to be in Christ is not that you are not judged. It means that you are judged in Christ and that he is the ark that safely takes you through the judgment waters of God. Which is why he says here that all of this is so contingent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if he doesn't rise from the dead, then he is not an ark that gets you through the waters. Baptism, it says here, is a type that was to direct us to understand what God would do for us in Jesus Christ. And that this baptism now is a visible Sign and seal, it's a visible experience of what God promises to do for anyone who will put their trust in Jesus Christ, who will get in the ark and ride through the judgment waters in his protective care. Your baptism is a means of grace that God has given you for you to actively reflect on and make a part of your everyday existence to be encouraged to keep pressing forward despite the darkness that you are experiencing within yourself and that you are experiencing within the world. That you have this life of Christ and you have his righteousness. He is your ark that you are riding through this world as aliens and sojourners. Our pilgrimage is not a pilgrimage only described in terms of walking. It is a pilgrimage described in terms of sailing. We are on this ark in Jesus Christ, and you have this sensible sign of water that has been applied to remind you that you in Jesus Christ are being taken safely through the judgment waters in him. The judgment waters that have overtaken God's enemies, whether it's sin, whether it's death, whether it is the demonic forces of the principalities and powers of the air. Everything has been conquered in Jesus Christ. You are safe in him, and your confidence, therefore, not to give in to fear, not to put your head in the sand and just try to wait for Jesus to return, not to accommodate to the culture around us 
your confidence is this. I have been baptized. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we don't tend to think about these things this way. And so we thank you that you reorient us this morning, that there is something beyond the natural, and that even the forces that we face on a daily basis are not limited to the natural, and that therefore there is something that is needed beyond the natural to deal with it, and that you have provided everything supernatural in Jesus Christ, in his person, in his work, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, even in his proclamation over the forces of darkness that they have been defeated and that he has won. There is nothing outside of your rule, of your control, of the limits that you have placed on evil. And so help us, Lord, to cultivate a faith that is supernatural, not only in the theology that we profess, but in the devotion that we express on a daily basis. A devotion that is consciously grounded in the supernatural that is at work within us. And help us to cultivate this, Lord, through the ongoing contemplation of our own baptism. That we would be renewed in understanding that we do not live a dry faith, but a wet faith. Where the waters... They have come, but we have been safely delivered. The Lord, use our baptisms to renew our efforts in righteousness and to renew our courage in the face of darkness. Lord, I know this is hard. I know this is hard for, for many, but I ask you, you would encourage your people this morning to take a chance, to take a chance that these things are real and to find the hope of what your presence delivers to us because of our Savior who has been the ark of our salvation. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.